Pretty soon the uh, sun will come out. It'll be light at 6.30, and then, of course, the time will change. So it'll be dark again. That's the way it goes in life, you know, from darkness to darkness. Pretty cynical today. You know, uh, when you look at the Proverbs, you, you get this um, wonderful display of wisdom. And uh, in the ultimate sense, I think what, what the book of Proverbs is all about is displaying to us who Christ is and all of his wisdom. Because uh, in Christ is all the wisdom of the universe. He, he incarnates wisdom. And uh, Solomon displays for us the height of wisdom in the Old Testament, which really shows us something about what the coming Messiah is going to be like. Well, when you look at the Proverbs uh, and you're seeking to gain wisdom, to have these proverbial statements in your heart and to be able to think proverbially, uh, what you realize is that so much of wisdom is being able to predict the consequences of certain behaviors. Uh, it's cause and effect. And when you think about it, that's, a, that's one pretty good description of a wise man. He's a man who can foresee the consequences of his behavior and who does and says certain things knowing they will lead to certain things. And he's able to predict it. And that's the reason that old men are sometimes the wisest among us because they've seen cause and effect for a long time. And so one of the keys to wisdom is then to see the effects of what we do now in the future. The ultimate expression of that is to be able to see the eternal effects of causes in time and space. So that what I do here has eternal consequences. And that would be, wouldn't it, the height of that sort of wisdom. And one who is in Christ really sees that difference and discerns good and evil and where good leads and where evil leads. It's the height of folly not to see that link. And to be acting in ways that lead to self-destruction. I remember when I was a, a kid, my, my best friend was Charlie. And Charlie was an amazingly bold person. He would do things that I would only think about. But he would actually put them into practice. And uh, I remember one day, uh, I was in the fourth grade with Charlie. And our teacher was Miss Oliphant. If you said Ms. Oliphant, she was really going to get all over you because she was single and she was proud of it. And if you ever saw Miss Oliphant, you would understand why. Uh, she was a rather large woman. And I remember uh, she was the uh, same age as my father, which at that time would be just around 49 or something. And she looked probably you know, 89 at that point in her life. She was huge. She had kind of a... I don't know how to describe her face. It, it's, um, it was either the beast out of the sea or the beast out of the earth. I don't know. But this woman, this woman was awesome. And her name was Miss Oliphant. And, of course, you know what we called her. You know, not to her face. But you know we didn't call her Miss Oliphant. We had some other names for her. And uh, she, she was legendary. And if you ever got paddled by Miss Oliphant, you would never forget it. 
Miss Oliphant left the room one day, as she did on occasion, knowing that the fear of Miss Oliphant would sustain any classroom in silence for at least 30 minutes without her being there, except for Charlie. And uh, I remember one day, Charlie would just, uh, Miss Oliphant left for a few moments, and he just started running around the classroom, taking people's pencils and throwing them everywhere, laughing. And we had little lockers in the back of our old classroom, and he jumped up on the lockers, and he started kicking them, just making all kinds of racket. And, of course, this was a delight to all of us who were naughty in spirit, but were chicken. And uh, Charlie taught me everything I ever known about naughtiness. Uh, and I just delighted to see him really go to work and show us how it all. But, you know, not, what made it so so silly and giddy was we all knew that Miss Oliphant was going to beat his butt when she got back. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, she came back while Charlie was hanging off the lockers. And uh, Charlie got it. But Charlie, was, what made him so delightful was that I mean, he was a boy, and Miss Oliphant was something close to a girl. And uh, so Miss Oliphant was not going to get the better of him, so he would come in after his blistering, and he'd have a big smile on his face. And this, this, this worked for Charlie all the way up to the seventh grade. And uh, we were in the seventh grade one time, and Charlie, he said or did something just completely just out of, uh, you know, out of left field. And Ms. Malone was substituting that day. She was a regular teacher, but she came in and substituted for our class because our teacher was ill and Charlie was taking, you know, taking nice advantage of this substitute. She finally caught him and she said, Charlie, come here. And he kind of sauntered up and had that same smile on his face. And we were all going, go, Charlie. This is going to be great. Yeah. Now, Ms. Malone was no small woman either. And uh, she decided that Charlie was bad enough she better whip him. So Charlie said, sure, that'll be fine. So she whipped him, and he just had a big smile on his face. And then she said, Charlie, come back here. So Charlie came back, and she just whipped him until old Charlie cried. He was an old man. He'd been through a lot by the seventh grade. And finally, Ms. Malone got it. And the point of this whole story is, you know, you, you, can, you can fake it for a long time. Put that big smile on your face. Everything's just fine and dandy. Give it the old southern gentleman. You know, fine, you know, no problems. Until finally, you know, you're just going to get it. And tears are going to come. And I, I learned a lot from old Charlie. And uh, grateful for it. And uh, I, I pray that I really learn from Charlie. Uh, and that we do too. Because the book of Revelation is really a book of wisdom. It's really taking the ultimate cause and effect you, know, you do this way, you live this way, you believe this way, it's going to end up over here. You do this way, you live this way, you believe this way, it's going to end up over here. And wise men will be those who look at it real clearly, real honestly, real bluntly, and realize that there's only one way that leads to a happy outcome. And we just get our whole lives lined up that way. And some of us are really struggling in this life because... We really haven't settled that ultimate question about how we're going to live our lives. Is it going to be in light of this trajectory, that destiny, or is it going to be in light of another destiny? And getting all of our lives lined up this way. The deepest pain in life is not being ill, not being bereaved, uh, not being broke. The biggest pain in life is have your life be a confused mess and not have it all adhere and cohere and go in one direction. 
you can get your life together going in one direction and you know you're headed for Zion, then life begins to fall together. And there can be a big smile on your face even while you're getting beat up by this life. And this is what John is saying in Revelation. Get your life lined up and going in the right direction. That's what we want, we want to see as we continue to study in Revelation chapter 14. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you, here was our brief outline. And it's printed actually on your handouts today. By the way, while you're looking, looking up uh, Revelation 14, uh, let me introduce to you all somebody who's here with us today, Taras Prestupa, right here. Taras, do you mind standing? Uh, Taras uh, is uh, from Ukraine. <laughs> Taras is uh, from Ukraine, and uh, he, uh, we met Taras some years ago. Uh, here was a man who, uh, when uh, Ukraine was in the Soviet Union and there was tremendous oppression on the Christians, Taras had 35 missionaries all across the USSR and uh, was just running it right out of his house. We met him, and since those days, it's been our privilege to work with Taras and be engaged in his ministry across the CIS and in Ukraine, training pastors as a seminary, pastors, camp for kids, uh, affecting Christ, uh, the educational system in Ukraine, uh, teaching businessmen how to develop capitalistic enterprises. Some of you have been over there to help him with that. Uh, just a tremendous mission. And Taras, it's our honor to have you here with us today. And Taras uh, also has experienced the Orange Revolution, about which many of us have been praying in, in recent days, where, as you know, democracy uh, has prevailed recently in Ukraine in a very dramatic way. And so, we, uh, Taras, we praise the Lord uh, for what he's done there in your country. Uh, Taras was here a few years ago, and he came to Amen Bible Study. He said, I want one of those. <laughs> so they have the Amen Bible Study now in, in uh, Rovno, Ukraine. <laughs> We're thankful for that. Guys, uh, Revelation 14, to fit it into context, you see here where we are, verses 12 through 14. Uh, chapters 12 through 14. The 144,000 endure the 1260 days. Now, why are we speaking about wisdom today? Because if, you know, you want to be one of the 144,000, and there's one way to do that. That's to put your faith in Jesus Christ, give your life to Him, tell Him that you're sold out to Him, you want your life to be under His rulership, you want to be numbered among His people, you become one of the 144,000. Second piece of wisdom is uh, you're going to make it to the end. You're not going to just make it, you know, totally exhausted and just, you know, barely escaping with the skin of your teeth. You're going to make it into glory. And it's going to be absolutely uh, mind-boggling how great it is when you get there. So wisdom is... Knowing you belong to 144,000, knowing you're going in this direction, knowing it's going to be absolutely fabulous when you get there, so you get everything in your life lined up toward that, that uh, destiny in your life. So that's where we are uh, after the seven angels and the seven trumpets. Now we're looking at this interim period between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ and how we live through the persecutions and the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties. So we pick up with chapter 14. Uh, we had just finished 13 last week, and we saw, in, to back up to chapter 12, uh, the dragon is trying to destroy Christ and loses. He gets thrown out of heaven, has no more access to even ask God for certain things, which he used to have as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection. Tries to destroy the church, and he can't do that either. So we saw him standing on the, on the seashore at the beginning of chapter 13, and no doubt frustrated, and he, we're told he's frustrated. Because his powers are limited, his time is short, he's being kicked out of heaven, he's one ticked off devil. So he's just looking over the scene 
And he's got some agents now. He calls on the beast out of the sea who represents the political powers and the human systems of government and of social structures who become evil through their distorted uh, idea of what they're supposed to be about. And then the beast out of the earth comes and he is the religious uh, heresies that fuels that beast out of the sea, those political systems, and they oppose us. And what we've seen is they can't get rid of us. Because when we come to chapter 14, at the end of this section, we're going to see that God preserves His people. He preserves them for something very glorious. This is how we discern things. This is how we have wisdom. This is how we know how to deal with the opposition in this world. Is We know where we're going. We know whose we are. We know what the end of the story is. So let's pick it up with chapter 14, verse 1. The Apostle John says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Let's take a look at it. The first thing we want to notice is this, these first five verses where John is learning that God's faithful people flourish. This is the whole point of verses 1 through 5. You can have the dragon, beasts, Miss Oliphant. <laughs> you can have all kinds of things coming at you. But if you're the faithful, you're going to flourish. Why? Well, because in the first three verses you see that we fellowship with the Lamb. We belong to Him. He is ours and we are His. And so no matter what we face, we are His people. So what do we see in verse 1? That they are actually standing with Him on Mount Zion. They are with Him. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him the 144,000. So we're with Him. We're with Him now, but we'll especially physically be with Him later. He is with us by His Spirit, but one day our physical senses will be satisfied and we'll be with Him visually and physically. Our resurrected bodies will enjoy His resurrected body. We'll be able to touch Him as the disciples did 2,000 years ago. So that's what Mount Zion means to us. It means the place where God meets with His people. That's what it meant in the Old Testament. Mount Zion is where the temple mount is. On Mount Zion, we build the temple. And the Shekinah glory descends upon that mount because God, His presence is with His people in the temple. It's exactly the way it's going to be for us when we get to the Mount Zion that comes out of heaven. We are there with the Shekinah glory. And it's the Lamb of God Himself who provides light for the new city. And we there uh, have perfect fellowship with Him. Secondly, we'll be sealed by Him. We see that there's a 666, as it were, on the foreheads and on the hands of those who follow the beast. And all that means is they just bear His mark. They're in business with Him. They're about, they're about His work. They do work His way. And uh, you saw that even the commerce 
uh, says John, uh, had to do with being marked by the beast. And that was very relevant for first century because only those who worshipped the emperor uh, were, were given economic privileges. And certainly Taraz could tell us uh, in his lifetime that only those who were in the Communist Party got economic privileges. Only those who had professed an atheistic belief system would be given access to universities. The Christians were marginalized. That's typical crud uh, from the pagan world. That's typically what happens, is that when you will not worship the state or the emperor or these human systems, you get marginalized. And it's true today, not in a physically coercive way, but in a real way, a social way usually where you work. That if you're too expressive or your religion gets too much out there in the open, you're going to be marginalized. It's the same spirit that has plagued the communist parties, or rather the communist countries in the last century, and plagued the Roman Empire. The Christians experienced this not only socially, but economically and sometimes physically through torture or imprisonment or death. So it's the same spirit that's being faced here. Well, if they're marked with the mark of this world system, that they're going to cooperate, they're going to play by the rules, and therefore they get economic and educational privileges, what John is saying, look, there's a better mark than that. And it's the mark of the Holy Spirit. It's the seal of the Spirit on your life. And you see the parallel here that it's, he had the 144,000 who had his name, that is the Lamb's name, and his Father's name, the Lamb's Father's name, written on their foreheads. Do you realize if you belong to Christ, as far as Christ is concerned, He looks down and He sees it. It's written all over you. He's got His name on you. You have your name, the name your mama gave you, your daddy gave you, but Christ has a name for you. And it's His own name. It's written on your forehead, as it were. It's very obvious to Him. Sometimes you feel like you're being lost and forgotten. Not to Him. You're one of the 144,000 and you have been sealed with His very name. And I always tell folks, look, if you're in Christ, you're going to have those moments when you're not quite sure that He really loves you. And it's usually when you're going through trials and we're whining and complaining, bitching, moaning, suggesting that God doesn't really love us, doesn't know what He's doing, not sure that this Christian thing is really true. Uh, so it's in those moments you usually question whether He even knows you're here. Or maybe theoretically or intellectually you're beginning to kind of wonder whether God can keep up with all these people uh, if they're all like you. Let me tell you, you're marked. You're sealed. He has His name on you. And even if He were a God who changed His mind about you, even if that were true, which is not true, He is not going to change His mind about Himself. And He has His name on you. He has a stake in His own glory, in getting you home safely. So, He would be perfectly within His rights to abandon you or abandon me. But He's not going to abandon Himself. And He would be perfectly within His rights to take your name and take it right through the mud. But He's not going to take His name through the mud. So, that He has staked His own glory on getting you home safely. You're branded. And it would be a colossal failure of the name of Jesus Christ for you not to make it. That's how great it is to be a Christian. It's no longer up to you, really. It's up to God defending the glory of His own name. So, that's the reason I feel real good about going to heaven. <laughs> He's not going to fail me. And then notice, they sang to Him. They sang to Him. You'll, you'll, you'll see uh, in verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne 
and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now look at this. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Some of you go to church and you look like a bunch of mutes. <laughs> and, you know, in this Presbyterian church, I'm sitting up there looking at you saying, what does he think he's doing at worship? You know, come there looking around. You know, see how many bricks are on the wall. Who's in church today? How many do you think are here today? I don't know. Uh, let's see. You know, yesterday you're sitting there thinking while everybody else is singing. Yesterday I had a drive on a third hole and that thing sliced over in the trees. I think if I'd pull my grip just a little bit over this way. You know, you're just looking around. And, and the Lord has called us to sing. He's redeemed us. He's bought us out of this earth to be worshipers. Do we realize this? Your chief function on the earth is not evangelism. Your chief function on the earth is to worship God. Missions is not the number one priority in this life. We have a huge mission conference this weekend. I hope all of you from second plan to be here tomorrow night, Saturday morning, cottage meetings and all the rest. Let's get to know our missionaries and support them. Huge enterprise. We put $900,000 overseas. Uh, it's a huge deal. We've got a lot of people to support. A lot of projects we're engaged in. But that's not the number one thing we're about. The number one thing is worship. Worship or rather, missions exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because we want to go into places where worship is not taking place, where the one who owns every square inch of this universe is not being praised, and we want to go raise up some people to praise Him from over there because we can't hear the bass section over in that country. can't hear the tenor section over in this country. So we send out choir directors into all these lands to raise up choristers. Because the number one priority of the earth is to give glory to the one who made us and redeemed us. And we must sing the new song. It's not just a song of creation. It's a song of redemption. It's a new song because I've learned some new things. I've learned that when I screw up, when I fail, when I know I deserve eternal hell, He saved me and is delivering me into heaven. And I'm going to sing about this. That's the attitude of a worshiper. Not only am I going to sing about it, I'm going to go recruit some other people to join the choir. That's the heart of a worshiper. That's the heart of someone who understands creation, fall, and redemption. And that's our number one priority in life. How are you doing on number one? How's number one going? Those of you in the Episcopal Church, have you really enjoyed your prayer book? That's an amazing book. Have you begun to master it? Has it, has it really sunk into your heart or is it just wrote for you every week? Oh, it's right number one this week. It's right number two. You know, well, I kind of know that by memory, but do you have it in your heart? Is it your song now? Uh, gentlemen, wherever you are, does that hymnal that you, that you use at church, has it become part of your personal liturgy so that you know how to praise the Lord? Have you memorized a few of those hymns so that now that's your song? You've taken Charles Wesley's song and it's your song. That's the number one priority of anybody who has come to know the Lord. Now, the, song, the hymn writer wrote just a few moments ago, maybe you remember this second stanza, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. In other words, the hymn writer is saying, that's fine. You don't know God. You don't know anything about redemption. You've not been saved. Refuse to sing makes perfect sense. 
Let those refuse to sing who never knew knew our God. But children of the heavenly King must speak their joys abroad. They can't help themselves because their heart is full of gratitude and it's got to come out in poetry and in song. And that's the reason we have music. That's the reason that we have harmonies that's built into creation. Why do you think, just as you have beautiful dogwoods harmonizing with the white and the pink and the green leaves and the blue air and the green grass and it all is beautifully harmonious, you don't even think about it. You just drive by and it's oh, that's nice. We have no idea how complex those wavelengths are to make everything, those, those uh, uh, yeah, wavelengths, light wavelengths, we don't know how complex they are to provide beautiful unity and diversity in, in visual creation. It's, it's unbelievable. Likewise with music, do you realize that harmonics are actually built into the creation of sound? Why do you think it's there? <laughs> There's a reason. So that that harmony will begin to arise from a cacophonous universe that's broken and fallen. And this song, you can start to hear it in the distance, is beginning to rise up because one day that harmonious song is going to wipe away all the cacophony of the universe. This is God's intention. He wants to be praised now in a broken world so that when we get to the world without cacophony, and without sin, without brokenness, it will burst out into the grand symphonic explosion of praise before God. Gentlemen, priority number one. Come on, let's get in on it. And let's become expert at it if it's number one. And then, as we're evangelizing, proclaiming the word abroad to folks out there, it's simply to recruit them to join the song. That's, that's the whole picture here. That's what you see here. That's cause and effect. And when you learn the song and you can sing the song, you'll find your heart being lifted up and you'll find that you have, once again, a sense of God's presence with you. Uh, some of you would know the name Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a well-known preacher uh, actually in London of the last century. And he died maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago uh, in his 80s. Marvelous preacher. He was actually a physician as a young man. And he was uh, an assistant to Lord Horder, who was the Queen's physician. He was a very prominent young physician. And then he was really convicted about his need to go into the ministry, so he did that. He went from one ministry to another ministry. He went into pastoral ministry, and they just always called him the doctor. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that uh, maybe it would be the opposite of what some young men would expect, but he said, as I got older, my heart actually got harder, not softer. He said it was more difficult for me in, in devotions, in reading the Bible, as I got older. With more, you know, it, you'd think with all that experience and knowing the Bible as he did and seeing God at work for so many years, his heart would be more tender. He said, no, he said, maybe it's just myself. But I just found it was harder to break my heart in the mornings. How did he do it? He said, the music of the church. His hymnal. And sometimes he would play music uh, on his phonograph in those days to soften his heart so that he just simply experienced once again the Lord's favor. Gentlemen, really, I, I, I know we're, we're not all musical here, and some of you are saying, man, I hope nobody ever hears me sing. Well, whisper it, but get it going. Because the harmonics in music is, uh, is meant to, to lead us to intimacy with the Lamb of God. So let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. The children of the heavenly King must speak our joys abroad. This is the idea 
that we have fellowship with the Lamb, we're different. We know somebody in a very high place and it's changed everything about us because we're going to that high place ourselves and that's going to be our permanent residence. We're going to live in the White House, as it were, the White House of the universe. Okay, secondly, they not only fellowship with the Lamb, but they follow the Lamb. Notice in verses 4 and 5, how are these people distinctive? This 144,000, they are a people who follow Him. We are told they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The latter part of verse 4 there, or in the middle of verse 4. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. How do they follow Him? Well, isn't this interesting? First thing He mentions is our sexual ethic. Just what you were hoping for. Verse 4, followers of the Lamb are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. The word actually here in Greek is the word for virgin. I guess I surrendered that a while ago. So I guess, I, you know, you might think, well, if I'm not a virgin, I'm not going to make it. No, what he's talking about is using that, once again, as a symbol. 144,000 is a symbol of the church. Virgin is a symbol for someone who's pure. So virgin just means pure. And so what he's saying is those who are the 144,000 have a sexual ethic that is different. I'll leave your finger there. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 20. And here the Apostle Paul is talking about our, our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 19. Well, look at verse 18. This is 1 Corinthians 6:18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So he's saying sexual sins are a peculiar category of sin because it does involve your body being involved in the sin. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So stay there just a minute. We're going to look at another verse. You see what, what he's saying? He was saying in Gnostic religion in the first century, second century A.D., the, the reigning philosophy of the day was that God is totally spirit and cannot have anything to do with the material world. So, so said the Gnostics, the Platonists, the Neoplatonists, that the way in which you commune with God is mentally uh, ascending through the emanations from the ideal and delivering yourself from your body. It's kind of an out-of-body experience. And that's how you experience God. The Jewish religion, the Christian religion are exactly the opposite. Rather than our trying to ascend through the emanations of spirit from the ideal spirit, God Himself, He descends to us. And what was scandalous to the Gnostic world is true. God took on flesh. That's a scandal to to a Gnostic. To say that God could be in touch with the material world because they said the material world itself is evil by nature. And the spirit world is good by nature. So you can't have those. It's oil and water. They cannot come together. But Christ was the scandal where good came into this world and took on flesh. Therefore, redeeming everything about the material world and about our bodies in particular so that now our bodies matter. 
But to the Gnostics, it didn't matter so much. That's the reason they had temple worship with the prostitution and all the, what we would call the bodily evils of this world, homosexuality, very openly practiced, and prostitutes in the temples. I mean, it was really obscene because the body didn't matter. But to us, the body did matter because we believe in the Incarnation. And the Holy Spirit lives in us, has taken up residence in our bodies. So now our bodies are temples. And the Jews knew what a temple meant. The Jews knew that a temple was sacred and you don't mess around with a temple. So now He is telling us, look, your body is it. So don't worship your body, but take it seriously because God is living inside this body. Okay? So, devote your body then to things that are worshipful, that that exalt Him. Now, if you'll look back at verse 9, you'll see another side of this use of body. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Good grief. Swindlers? I think that hits just about everybody. As I look around the room. Drunkards? Yep. Thieves? Mm-hmm. I see a bunch of stuff here. So what's the answer? Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Were. Nobody here is going to be proud. We know what you were. We know what your natural rights are based on your performance. Not much. This is what some of you were. But... You were washed. You were sanctified. That is, made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, therefore, devote your body to worshipful things. That's what he's saying. You used to use your body like this. And furthermore, people who do that, for whom that's the trajectory of their life, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God unless they're washed, sanctified, justified, set apart. So, once again, we see that the sexual life is extraordinarily important for the Christian. And this is now the great scandal in the Christian church. That the use of our body appears to be no different from the use of the body of the pagan next to us. And the statistics are showing that their sexual behavior is very similar to our own. This is now today's scandal. I'm sure there are many reasons for it. But I'm quite sure that one reason for it is a lack of the fear of God. Because he is basically saying, look, those who do these things go in this direction. Cause and effect. Those who devote themselves to this lifestyle, it leads in this direction. And it ends up in Zion. And you must choose. And we have this idea in our heads that choosing is one day coming under conviction with tears, walking down an aisle, getting baptized, and you've now chosen it for the rest of your life. Nothing wrong with that. We believe in public professions of faith. But choosing is choosing your lifestyle based on a destiny that you have in mind 
in which you're going to, to which you're going to arrive one day. That's choosing. Choosing is an everyday choice. I'm going in this direction, and this is what I'm going to do with my life, including my sexual life. Choosing is dating a young lady, and after about the third date, when most ladies have learned in our day that you should be expecting sexual favors, that you clear up the confusion. When you're, once you're, uh, you're clear that you think you might want to date this woman and see if you might marry her, you're going to clear up the confusion. You're going to say, uh, sister, uh, there's a lot of confusion out there about how people live their lives together when they're dating each other. I want to make you clear, what my, clear to you what my standards are and be sure you're okay with this if we're going to continue dating. And here's the standard. And you explain it to her theologically. You need to do that now because of the massive confusion in the church as well as society. And let's make it clear to everybody around us. Let's set our stakes in the ground. This is the way it's going to be. And we need to make it clear. We're in the, in the workplace and someone's being seductive and you're enjoying it way too much with your belly going over your belt and your gray hair and you're thinking, hey, this is kind of nice. <laughs> Hadn't experienced this from the old lady in a while. And you realize that if you're sitting there enjoying it, you just turned around and went this direction, that leads right straight to hell. And you're not singing your song anymore. You have stopped singing. There's no song. You've chosen another lifestyle in that moment. And you need to put a stake in the ground. And you don't have to make any grand speeches to her. You know exactly what to do. It's all business. And you deal with business. And you get rid of the seductions. And you don't play into it. And you ignore it. And if you have to, then you put some boundaries up and you then start dropping your wife's name and you start bringing her into your workplace. And just let her spend about 15 minutes there and let everybody see how cozy you all are and how devoted you are to your wife. Let them get one good look at her and see who's boss in your life sexually and then let her go home or go back to her workplace. You can do things. When you want to make things clear, you can make them very clear. And here is what John is saying. I saw some people who were near Jesus. They were near the Lamb of God. They were having the time of their lives. They were the people who kept themselves pure. They were having the time of their lives. You want to have healthy relationships with women? The way to do it is to respect them and to respect proper boundaries. And that begins by respecting and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, the women will catch the scent. And here's the scent they will catch. You're safe. Therefore, I can be real with him, I can be honest with him, and I can have an intelligent conversation with him. But when you're being coy and you're trying to be cute, you're no longer safe. And the only ones who like it are the ones who are looking for trouble. And you're doing this. You don't think about it on the top of your head, but down the back. You know what I'm talking about. And you enjoy certain things and you play into them. Let's stop enjoying that because we're wise. And that leads to hell. I don't want to go there. I don't want anybody else to go there. There's a story about in the old, in the old uh, days of the colonies. There was a, a man who came to see a young lady. And uh, they were, there was a candlelight in the, in the cottage there. And he simply said to her, come on, just once. And she said to him, uh, do you see that candle over there? Yes. She said, would you just stick your finger in it and hold it in, in, the, fire, uh, in the fire and then I'll think about it. He said, put my finger in the fire and burn it off. She said, yeah, and you want me to burn in hell by going to bed with you. And that's what we're doing to people. It's not love. 
It's not love. It's intense selfishness. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you, someone's sexual favors or sexual relationship to another person, a man. You're taking that for yourself. It is not yours. It's not hers to give with license either. But it's not yours to take. And you're stealing from another person. And stealing from the Lord. Some years ago, one of Allison, my wife's old boyfriends, came through town. You ever had that happen? My children, especially my daughters, were very interested to meet the man who could have been their father. We'll be looking, Dad, to see if uh, Mom made the right choice. He was here on a sales trip. We invited him into our home. We had the time of our lives. It's a fun night. Because he didn't take anything that belonged to me. Nothing. We have a great relationship. And it's wonderful. Just we're, They were childhood sweethearts. And it was great to have him there. Because he honored her. He lifted her up. He's my friend. He's my brother and her brother. Now, gentlemen, that's the way you can have healthy relationships across gender lines when you respect the boundaries. People know you're basically here to be a worshiper. That's your number one goal. And you're basically here to help other people worship. When you crawl between the sheets with somebody that doesn't belong to you, you're not helping them worship. That's the last thing you're thinking about. And that's your number one purpose in life. So we're described, first of all, is those who understand the theology of the body. The body makes a difference because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we are engaging sexually in ways that demonstrate the theology that we believe in. I told uh, some seniors in high school, I meet with them four times this year just after Sunday church for lunch. We talk about a variety of things. And last time I gave them the sex talk. And I don't know if you've seen the, the book uh, I Am Charlotte. How many of you have seen it or read it? Uh, just describing, it's a novel, but it describes the college sexual experience. And they say the real scandal of this book is that it's true. It's unbelievable. And most people don't want to read it because you don't want to think about the places you're sending your kids to college and university. But that's what's out there. And so we talked about it the other day. I simply said to them, you, those of you who are believers in Christ, would you like to have the, probably the number one way in which you can bear witness to your love for Jesus Christ? Sure. How can we do that? Be sexually pure. Because you're going to be weird. You're not going to be Charlotte. You're going to be weird. You're going to stand out. And your girlfriends are going to ask you, what's the deal here? You're not sleeping with so-and-so? Uh, you're not engaging in sex? You, you're some sort of a prude? No, I'm a worshiper. I've met the one who gave his body for me. And he asked me to set my body apart for him. And that's what it's all about. And I'm to help my brother, friend, set his body apart. And furthermore, what we've discovered is you can have a much more intimate, meaningful relationship when you're honoring each other's boundaries and honoring the Lord in your relationship. And I promise you, you'll have better relationships this way and it'll be much easier for you to witness because everybody will wonder about the weirdness of your life. That is, if you're, I'm talking about a single college student. For us, in some ways, it's the same way. You look prudish when you have standards, when you have moderation when you have propriety, when you have boundaries, when you use some of the things that appear to be old-fashioned to put up proper boundaries. And people may ask you why. You say, here's why. Because I, honor the, I want to honor the people around me. Because I don't want to engage in anything that looks like I'm, I'm available. I'm not. So this is what he's saying. Now, some of you will say, <clears throat> Pastor, uh, I wish I'd heard this speech about 25 years ago. Uh, listen, you're hearing it right now. 
And here's the beauty of it. The blood of the Lamb washes away all of our sins. And if He didn't, I wouldn't be talking about sexual sins. You know, I told you I became a Christian at 25. Am I going to get before the Lord? Here we are at the last day. Okay, Lord, I'm here standing on my record. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) That's not a joke. That's a tragedy. That's the ultimate folly for me to stand on my record. I told you about my one time in my fraternity uh, when it was my my third year, and we were electing officers for the next year. And uh, you know they had a little they had a little uh, you know uh, election there for president of fraternity. Several men were, were running. And they all gave, they had three minutes to give their speech. And one of them that was nominated was a man named Stewball. And uh, Doug Hickson was in my fraternity. He, he probably remembers Stewball. He was in my class. Stewball was a guy who, after class, he'd come home uh, to the fraternity house and sit in the basement and watch Star Trek and drink his Schlitz beer in the back and just drink you know, all night. You know, and he, he was kind of balding. He had a little hair coming over the side of his head. And he, he was overweight and just kind of waddled around, you know, Stubal, a great party guy. And that was his contribution to the fraternity. So it was time for Stubal to give his speech, you know, to tell us why he ought to be president. So they said, okay, Stubal, your turn. And he sat in the back with his cigarette and his beer, and he said, I stand on my record. <laughs> and gentlemen, that's the way it would be for me to stand before the Lord and say, I stand on my record with a cigarette and a beer in my hand. That's about it. And it's a joke. So I'm not standing on my sexual record, I'll promise you that. I'm not standing on my historical sexual record. I'm not standing on my future historical, on my future sexual record either. All the thoughts that go through my mind and the women that I've undressed in my life, in my mind. Uh, <laughs> you guys, you got, you got a very troubled mind there, don't you? That's, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter said, yeah, man, I, I struggle with adultery, you know. The, the, the lust in my heart, he said. And everybody went, oh, and I'm going, yeah, man, I can understand that. Uh, but all the things I've done in my mind that were wrong, all the thoughts I've had, I'm not standing on that record. I've got one record I'm standing on. The perfect sexual behavior of Jesus Christ. That's my record. I'll get to heaven and, and the Father will say, Wilson, now you're incredible. You have all these women around you, falling all over you, thinking you're beautiful and wonderful. And, and I'm saying, Lord, I think you got the wrong person. He said, no, I'm talking about Jesus. Oh, you mean I get credit for His purity and His, his stamina and His lack of falling into sin in His mind and in His body? Yes, son, that's your record. That's my record. And gentlemen, it can be your record. That's what it means to trust in Christ. Those sins are washed away. You get a new record. And now you get a new heart. And the reason you want to live in your body for Him is because you have a new record. He's giving you a heart. You're in love with Him. So let's just start today, February the 24th. This is a new day. And I'm going to live a chaste life beginning today. Start to, that's the beauty of Christianity. You get to start all over every day. And let's get ourselves going in that trajectory. That's what it's all about. A sexual ethic like the ethic of Jesus. Secondly, we're in His steps. And you see that they followed Him wherever He went. Gentlemen, our job is to figure out where is Jesus going? Where do I discern that He has an interest? Where do His footsteps lead? And then I go there. And if His footsteps take me to the poor, I go there. 
If His footsteps take me to the one who's the social outcast at work, I go there. If His footsteps take me to be tender to my wife, I go there. If His footsteps take me to be a worshiper like He is, I go there into the synagogue with Him to worship. So I follow Him wherever He goes. Stay tight with Him. Peter denied the Lord three times when, we are told in Luke, he followed the Lord, quote, from a distance. That was his problem. He was following from a distance. Follow Christ up tight. And when you sense that He's going somewhere, simply go with Him. Thirdly, we are the first fruits. We are a harvest for Him. We're given over as a sacrifice to Him. That's the purpose of our redemption is to be sheep fattened for the slaughter so that we please Him with our lives. We're living sacrifices, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. The problem with the living sacrifice, it keeps crawling off the altar. Get yourself back on the altar so that you're dying for Him. You're living for Him. This is the whole purpose of your life is to exalt Him whether it kills you or whether it blesses you in this life. Fourthly, speech. Notice what John saw. No lie was found in their mouths. Wow! Our mouths matter. The people who are the 144,000 who are the sealed of God, who are His people in the midst of this chaos, are not the people who are necessarily the most successful people. Not the people who are in the Fortune 500 as the richest or wealthiest people in the world necessarily. Not the most popular people. Not the best dancer necessarily. That covers most people in this room. But the people who don't tell lies. And gentlemen, in a day in this country where 75% of the people would lie to get ahead by their own admission, you can stand out brilliantly as a follower of Jesus Christ when you simply insist on telling the truth. One of the number one traits of a healthy society is a society that values the truth. And we're falling apart at the seams because we don't respect the truth anymore. There's no absolute truth and there's nothing about telling the truth to one another. And if you get caught in a sin or a crime, the coach will tell you, just bulldoze your way through it, stonewall, pretend that you didn't do it, go on as though nothing happened and just deny it all. And guess what? They're right. If your perspective in wisdom is simply trying to get the most of this world's resources and go around once for all the gusto. They're right. But a wise person has watched Charlie and knows that ultimately the comeuppance is coming. And you don't want that. We're wise people. A wise person understands what Jesus Christ has done for me, and I don't want to dishonor Him. Let there be truth in the mouths of the men in this room. And let the lies be over with. And let yourself begin to face the consequences of telling the truth. Instead of trying to manipulate and lie and deceive and get your way out of fear, wise people are people who are not afraid of the future. We go into the future boldly because we have we have we won the victory. And so we're going to live on the truth. Stop shady practices with your tax returns. Stop the the legal fraud, as it were, that goes on. You're getting by with it. You're shading things. But you're getting by with it because you, no one's noticing so far. Stop all that. Say so we're going to base our practices, our, our lifestyle on the truth. And as we've said many times, that doesn't mean you tell the whole truth. 
You don't tell her that she doesn't look good in that dress. You don't tell her that she looks overweight in that dress. You don't tell her that hat is ugly. You don't tell her a lie. You don't tell her the whole truth. But when you speak, you do tell the truth. Honey, that hat is a nice looking hat for some people. Uh, that dress looks great. Not particularly on you, though. Uh, so you, you, doesn't, you never flatter. And flattery is a lie. It's saying something positive about another person that's not true. And you're not doing it to help them. You're doing it to help yourself and your popularity with that person. That's a lie. Be done with it. The people who are the 144,000 of the Lamb of God are people who don't advance their own personal temporary causes through telling lies. That's what he's saying. And their sanctity. Look at what, they, what he says here at the end. They are blameless. These 144,000 are people who are like unblemished sacrifices. Now, let's be real clear about something. The only way we can be absolutely blameless is by the blood of Christ washing all our sins away. It's our justification. When you put your trust in Christ, what you get is a total remission of your sins before God. For the past, the present, and the future. It's all washed away. No exception. You say, well, Wilson, there's one thing I did, you know, I think I've got to work my way out of that one. And listen just a minute. David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. David was a, an outrageous, publicly scandalous adulterer. You think David said, well, God will forgive me all my sins except for those two big ones. You think Saul said, well, God will forgive me all my sins well, except for the murder of Christians because they were Christians. I don't see how any... I don't see how God could ever forgive that. No. They're totally forgiven. And Paul said, I'm the worst of the sinners. And the reason he forgave me is to convince everybody else, well, if he can forgive Saul, he can sure forgive me. I'm a trophy of his grace. And the ones who are the spokesmen for God are those who knew they were trophies of his grace. And that's what makes you a spokesman when you know you're a trophy of his grace precisely because he did forgive all your worst sins as well as your little ones. They're all gone. That's what makes us spotless. But then there's an experience of blamelessness that we're walking in not perfectly, but repentantly. That we are moving toward that spotlessness, not just because of what someone's done for us, but now also because of what He's done in us. And He's changing our own hearts. And we're walking in a new way. That's also part of the Christian experience. And so you want to know what God's will for your life is? The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Here is God's will for you. That you should be holy. Gentlemen, that's the agenda. That you should be set apart to be like the Lamb. That you should take on His nature. That you should take on His character. That's the purpose of God. That's what it means to be marching toward Zion. I want to be like Him. I'm of the 144,000. He's redeemed me from this fallen world to praise His name and to walk in His lifestyle. That's it. And that's what the author of Revelation is saying. That's what John has seen. These are the people of God. Precisely because He'll never forget them. And because they will not forget Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the 144,000 who clearly fellowship with the Lamb and who follow the Lamb step by step.
And Lord, we want to confess our sins this morning. We know we've not followed you perfectly. We ask again for the experience of forgiveness. All that washed away. And help us start today anew, this day, to be the people who take on the life of Jesus in our own lives. Help us to enjoy the foretaste of heaven by enjoying the foretaste of that lifestyle right now in our lives. Help us, O God, for we would be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.